Good morning, men. Uh, it is a joy for me to be able to introduce our speaker today, Joshua Smith. He's a, he's a dear friend of mine. Um, he's served as a missionary to Spain, as, as you guys heard Dave uh, up there in the uh, worship hall talk about. And, and then the Lord took him to Mexico City, Mexico, which is where my wife and I actually uh, met him. Uh, we did a short-term mission trip and partnered with uh, Joshua and his team there. Uh, for a summer that was years ago, 2014, I think. Um, but that was, I was just greatly blessed and helped by um, Joshua's focus on building the local church as the driver of mission work. And that was something that I had not really encountered before. So um, I know that we will all be blessed by uh, the message this morning. So please help me welcome Joshua Smith. Good morning, guys. Um, before I start, I want to mention that I have a few books here on the side. It's a book called Missions by Nine Marks. This is my offer, all right, from the very beginning. If you haven't read the book and you are engaged in missions in some way or you're a missions leader in your church, then you can take the book for free if you read it over the next month and you send me a note telling me what you learned. All right, that's the deal. You have to read it and send me a note. Other than that, it's free for the taking, all right? <laughs> okay. Well, I've had the privilege of serving the Lord for uh, just over 20 years as an international missionary, along with my wife and my four kids. Uh, we served for eight years in northern Spain, uh, 10 years in Mexico City, Mexico, and now I'm serving as an area leader, providing leadership over Latin America and Caribbean for Reach Global, which is the international wing of the Evangelical Free Church of America. Are there any free church? Church people out there? I know Eric's there. All right, Eric, you're my favorite. <laughs> so my, my kids, uh, they are 19, 17, 15, and 5. And that 5-year-old was a surprise. Uh, we had planned on closing the factory, and God chose to reopen the factory. So God is sovereign in all things. And guys, if any of you have closed the factory, you might want to get a checkup, just in case. <clears throat> so... So over my 20 years of ministry, I've learned a lot of things about ministry and missions, but I've especially learned a great deal about partnership, about what it means to work together. In fact, at this point in my life, I'm pretty convinced that working in partnership with like-minded, gospel-centered, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving churches and organizations is central to our ability to have widespread impact in our world. We're simply not enough on our own, and we were never meant to be enough on our own. So as God's people, we really are better together. So let me pray, and we're going to jump into the book of 3 John and see what God tells us about partnership. Father, uh, thank you for bringing us here to partner with one another. We ask God that you'll speak through your word to encourage our hearts and to enable us to have impact locally, regionally, internationally for your glory. And we pray, God, for the salvation of many, many men and women. In Jesus' name, amen. So at the heart of effective global missions is a relationship, a collaborative partnership between missionary teams and local churches and church members that support them. Local churches simply cannot reach the world without faithful missionaries who are willing to go. And 
missionaries cannot reach the world without faithful local churches who are willing to sacrificially send them. When this partnership between the church and the missionary is done well, it can be one of the most beautiful, encouraging, impactful relationships in the world. However, when that relationship goes poorly, it can be one of the most damaging, heart-wrenching relationships I have ever seen, leaving behind a trail of mistrust, damaged people, broken relationships, and ultimately unfruitful, ineffective ministry. Or to put it another way, when this church-missionary relationship goes well, it can go really well. When it goes bad, it can go really, really bad. Pretty much every missionary I know has lived both sides of that coin. And I suspect every missions leader in a local church would say the same thing. So what does it look like for a local church to faithfully support missionaries as gospel partners and so become what the Apostle John calls fellow workers for the truth? What should that kind of support look like? What might it involve? Now, interestingly enough, there's actually a book in the Bible that addresses this very issue. You may not have known that, and it is the book of 3 John. So you'll turn with me there. We're going to read this little, my Bible, half-page book of 3 John. And we're going to find it tells us quite a bit about how we might faithfully support our missionary partners so that together we fill the world with the good news of Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and read the, the entire book. 3 John, beginning in verse 1, it says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. 
The book of 3 John is really a drama, a drama with four primary characters besides God himself. First of all, we have the, the author of the letter, the Apostle John, who simply calls himself the elder in verse 1. Now, John was probably advanced in age at this point, but as an apostle commissioned by Jesus himself, he continued to have significant influence throughout the region as a spiritual authority and also as a spiritual father for many of the churches and leaders. John's writing in this book is filled with deep, affectionate, even fatherly language. As he calls his fellow believers his children in verse 4, his friends in verse 15. And he specifically calls Gaius beloved three times in verses 1, 5, and 11. However, not everyone is equally happy about John's continued influence, and we'll get to that. The second main character is Gaius, who is the recipient of the letter. It says in verse 1, The elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Now, Gaius must have been a pretty amazing man because John only has good things to say about him. He praises this beloved Gaius in verses 3 through 4 for faithfully walking in the truth. And in verses 5 through 8, for his faithful efforts to love and support the traveling missionaries. Gaius had previously shown hospitality to a group of missionaries, according to verses 5 through 6. And now, in verses 6 through 8, John is writing him to let him know that there's a new group of missionaries who will need his partnership and collaboration in order to continue on in their ministry. That leads us to the third main character, which is really a group of people, a group of missionaries the Apostle John calls the brothers. We find them in verses 3, 5, and 10. And we know that these brothers are missionaries because they are traveling gospel workers, what today we would call missionaries. It says in verse 7 that they had gone out for the sake of the Lord. They had gone out for the sake of the Lord. They had gone out from their homes and places of familiarity and comfort in order to make Jesus known, what today we'd probably call missionaries. Now, this particular group of missionaries was likely led by Demetrius, who we meet in verse 12, and who should not be confused with Diotrephes, who's kind of the bad guy of the letter. These missionaries, they needed the practical support of existing local churches in order to continue on with their missionary endeavors. And this is where Gaius and his church come in as fellow workers for the truth in verse 8. But this is also where things start to get pretty nasty with Diotrephes, who according to verse 10, refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. And that leads us to our fourth main character, the bad guy of the letter, Diotrephes. So according to 3 John, verses 9 through 11, Diotrephes was an influential leader who had a pretty serious problem. According to verse 9, he likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge our authority. You ever met a leader like that? Likes to put himself first and not acknowledge biblical authority in his life. 
Diotrephes apparently viewed the ongoing influence of the Apostle John as a threat to his own position of power and preeminence in the church. So as a result, when the Apostle sent him a letter, Diotrephes responded by rejecting John's apostolic authority, slandering the Apostle to others, refusing to receive the missionaries sent by John, and then going so far as to expel from his church any believers who did care for the missionaries, who did do the right thing. His abusive leadership and its impact on the missionary community is one of the primary reasons that John wrote this letter. And it stands in sharp contrast to the beloved Gaius. Now, to add a little more intrigue to the letter, it is unclear if Gaius is a member or leader in Diotrephes' church or if he is a leader in a different local church in the area. So if he's a member of Diotrephes' church, then he's actually in danger of being kicked out of the church for supporting the missionaries. On the other hand, if he is a leader in a different church, then the Apostle John is drawing him into a regional conflict. And either way, things could get pretty messy. So, so there, there are four main characters in 3 John, and as you can see, there's enough material here for a series of podcasts or a telenovela in Mexico or a gritty miniseries on HBO Max or at least on VidAngel. Um, but what I want to focus on today are, are four key insights from 3 John, four insights that I believe ought to shape how we think about and engage in faithful missionary support, both as local churches and as individual believers. So first, we're going to see that faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership. Secondly, that it should be extravagant. Third, that it should protect our missionaries. And fourth, that it should be given to faithful gospel workers. And I'll unpack each of those. So first of all, we find in 3 John that faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership. It should be rooted in partnership. 3 John, verse 8, says, Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Fellow workers is the key phrase here. We ought to support missionaries like these so that we may be fellow workers for the truth and expansion of the gospel. At the heart of missionary support is partnership. It's a way of thinking and acting that says we are in this together. If we are fellow workers, then we don't just give money or support to missionaries so that they can do their thing while we do our thing. To the contrary, we support missionaries because their thing is our thing. And our thing is their thing. The spread of the gospel, both locally and internationally, the making of faithful disciples, is the shared mutual mission that we have been given. And so we must seek to partner together as fellow workers for the truth. As a local church, wherever you are, your primary focus may be your town here in Kansas or in the Midwest. And 
as a missionary, my primary focus might be in Latin America. But the end goal, the shared mission is the same. That all people might know the greatness and glory of Jesus and the saving power of his gospel. And real partnership is not just a haphazard, throw a few dollars into the missionary collection plate and move on sort of a thing. Instead, it is characterized by the very things that characterize Gaius' partnership in 3 John 5-6, through where John writes this. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. Gaius' partnership was characterized by faithfulness, effort, and love. Faithfulness, effort, and love. In 3 John, Gaius is being specifically asked to show faithfulness, effort, and love by providing hospitality and financial support to these visiting missionaries so they could continue on with their ministry. And hospitality and financial support are still two important ways that churches can and should partner with their missionaries. I mean, over the past 20 years, my wife and I have been so blessed by the number of men and women and churches who have served and partnered with us through their hospitality and financial support as fellow workers for the truth. That is legitimate, meaningful ministry. But in addition to hospitality and financial support, There's actually a pretty endless number of ways that you can come alongside and faithfully partner with your missionaries. Regular prayer, writing an encouraging letter or sending a a thoughtful package, maybe offering them your professional services, providing administrative or technical support, and men, maybe even loaning them some of your tools when they return from the mission field. Because guess what? They don't have any. All right? And if some of your missionaries are a little bit more theologians than craftsmen, maybe they could also use your help knowing how to use the tools because they don't know anything. All right? That's for somebody else. I heard that rumor. (laughs) Those are good things. But if you really want to faithfully partner with missionaries, I would also ask you to do four particular things. Okay? First of all, if you want to partner well with your missionaries— be good church members. Be good church members. Serving faithfully right where you are. If we're in this together, then your ministry here is just as important as my ministry over there. And few things can make a missionary happier than coming back and finding their supporting churches fully engaged in the work of the gospel right where they are. Be good church members. Secondly, and this is especially for church leaders, if you want to be good gospel partners, then ask your missionaries for counsel. Ask your missionaries for counsel. Ask them for their thoughts and wisdom as you think through ministry issues. Because real partnership goes both ways. So include your missionaries in your mission. After church planting and disciple-making, over the years, in multiple environments, maybe they have something meaningful to share with you and your church body. Third, if you want to be good gospel partners, then maybe 
you should go. Maybe you should consider becoming a missionary. Did you know that there is a special school where God helps us identify and equip and send new missionaries? It's a special school. It's called the church. It's called the local church. It's you. If you have been a committed church member, discipled by godly leaders, faithful in service, and equipped in the message and work of the gospel, then maybe you're the one who needs to lay aside the American dream and go. So if you're wondering if that might be you, I'd encourage you to pray about it. Secondly, talk to your church leaders. Then third, maybe come talk to me. See what the Lord has for you. And fourth, if you want to be good missionary partners, then believe the best about your missionaries. Believe the best about your missionaries. Local churches truly partnering with missionaries sounds like a great idea. But the truth is that good partnerships can actually be harder to develop and maintain than you would imagine. The reality is that the relationship between local churches and their missionaries can easily grow cold and distant. That's just what happens when you minister on different continents and in different cultures and in different languages over a period of years and years and years. After being gone for 20 years, guess what? We've all changed. We even have tensions over miscommunication or differing expectations or even differing philosophies of ministry. I mean, even Paul Barnabas and John Mark had a hard time working together, right? If we come into our church missionary relationship with an attitude of mistrust, it shouldn't come as a surprise when things go bad and when we find fault with one another. But according to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, love believes all things. Love believes all things. A default attitude, a posture of believing the best about your missionaries will go a long way toward building and sustaining healthy missions partnerships. Believe the best. So the first thing we find in 3 John is that faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership. Secondly, we learn that missionary support, faithful missionary support, should be extravagant. It should be extravagant. 3 John 6 says this, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In a manner worthy of God. Now, I, I almost use the word abundant here, to describe faithful missionary support, but I don't think that does justice to the text. We should be extravagant in our support. 3 John 6 tells us that we should support our missionaries in a manner worthy of who? Of God himself. So if God himself were to come to your local church and ask for support, or if God were to send you an apostle or a missionary and tell you to support them, how would you support them? Would you give him the bare minimum in order to keep him humble? 
Would you give him just enough so that you could say that you fulfilled your duty? Or do you provide for him lavishly and extravagantly as an act of worship to God? Or as 3 John 6 says, in a manner worthy of God, God himself. So let me start by saying that God's people have extravagantly supported my family. So that's not some general rebuke for being stingy. Now, I also want to make clear that I don't know of any missionaries who are serving the Lord just for the money. They may be out there, but I don't know them. In fact, many pastors and missionaries could have taken their talents and advanced degrees into the secular workforce and probably made a lot more money. But there's a strange and disturbing thing that happens when we start talking about pastors and missionaries and money. We, we tend to think that pastors and missionaries should live on the verge of poverty, that they should get the bare minimum, but not much more. I literally know a missionary who once received a used tea bag in a missionary package in Africa, because all she deserved apparently were the leftovers. Now, there are many churches and mission agencies that function with the same faulty assumption, expecting or even demanding that their missionaries live with an inadequate means of support, with inadequate salaries. But John tells Gaius that he should send off the missionaries in a manner worthy of God. And in verse 8, he makes clear that it is our moral duty to do the same thing, explicitly saying in verse 8, therefore we ought to support people like these. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Luke 10, verse 7, and in 1 Timothy 5, 18, both Paul and Jesus say basically the exact same thing. Talking specifically about gospel workers, they both say, the laborer deserves his wages. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, Paul says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, so currently in the U.S., there is a shortage of workers, right? Which means that you can make $13 an hour starting at McDonald's. You can make $20 an hour starting at the Tyson factory here in Emporia. And if you can run and throw like Patrick Mahomes... There are at least a handful of NFL teams willing to give you a few million. The salary of every job is dependent on the perceived value of the job, and usually the cost of living in a given area. So, how valuable is the work of someone who prepares themselves for years in order to cross national, linguistic, and cultural barriers in order to offer forgiveness and eternal life to all who will believe in Jesus. Oftentimes risking the well-being of themselves and their families in the process. How much is that worth to you? How valuable is that? Now, my, my point is not that missionaries should be millionaires. I'm not going to take up a collection at the end, all right? Don't worry. <laughs> In fact, the Bible makes clear that being a lover of money 
disqualifies a person from church leadership. My point is that we should send them out in a manner worthy of God, as workers worthy of their wages. The question is not what would it have looked like back then to send them out in a manner worthy of God. The question is what would it look like today to send them out in a manner worthy of God? So how about this? We've all had bad jobs and bad bosses at some point, right? Raise your hand if you've ever had a bad job or a bad boss. Raise your hand if you're still stuck. And No, I'm kidding. You know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if that's you. I am. So I would like you to take a second and consider what a good job or even a great job might look like. Think about that. Think about things like salary, health insurance, retirement, vacation time, even cost of living adjustments so that you can buy eggs. How should a good company provide for its employees? Your answer to that question provides a great starting point for how we and our churches and mission agencies should support our pastors and our missionaries in a manner worthy of God. So first of all, faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership Secondly, it should be extravagant in its provision. And third, it should protect our missionaries. Faithful missionary support should protect our missionaries. I want to read 3 John verses 9 through 10 and ask that you listen to it from the point of view of the missionaries, of the brothers, okay? It says this in verses 9 through 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. In this passage, there is a serious conflict between John and Diotrephes. And it seems pretty clear that the Apostle John is in the right. But who initially bears the brunt of the conflict? Do you notice that? Who initially bears the brunt of the conflict? According to verse 10, it's the brothers, who again refer to these traveling gospel workers, who today we would call missionaries. Because of his conflict with John, it says in verse 10 that Diotrephes refuses to welcome the missionaries and also stops those who want to. <clears throat> so who is left without food and a place to stay because of the conflict between John and Diotrephes? It's not John. It's the missionaries. Who is dependent on Gaius' support in order to continue on in their missionary journey? It's the missionaries. There's something that characterizes the missionary life that very few people talk about. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Missionaries, by nature, are deeply vulnerable. I, I don't mean weak. I mean vulnerable. For example, my, my wife was raised in, on the mission field in rural Mexico. And when her family arrived, they could not find a place to live 
because the local priests would not allow anyone to rent them a home. They were vulnerable. Missionaries are vulnerable as migrants to a new country under new laws and cultural expectations. We are vulnerable to sickness and disease. We are vulnerable to soul-crushing loneliness. We are vulnerable to miscommunication in a new language. And we are vulnerable to people accepting or rejecting us. And strangely enough, that's true both for us when we go to the mission field and when we come back. Missionaries are especially vulnerable to being misunderstood by their American churches, by you guys. Our ministry situation tends to look very different than that of the average U.S. church. We're gone for long periods of time. We work under different ministry and legal environments. And if that weren't complicated enough, you guys probably don't realize this, but every U.S. church tends to develop their own particular theological language. For one church, words like justice, community, and reconciliation are understood as biblical virtues. But for another church, they are code words for liberal, progressive, or woke. It depends on the church and the city and the region in the U.S. and the context. So, so missionaries oftentimes just end up confused or under suspicion, misunderstood, and very possibly with less financial support the following month because they used the wrong word. I have personally been accused or suspected of being emergent, a Marxist, a liberal, and a fundamentalist. <laughs> Even though I don't think I'm any of those things. The vulnerable situation of the missionaries in 3 John, it may seem kind of extreme, right? With a church leader refusing to accept the missionaries, then kicking people out who do. But is it really so hard to imagine? I personally know of a young missionary who found himself dragged into a conflict not so different than what we find in 3 John. This young missionary had been sent out by his childhood church as an ordained elder and as their model for missions. But just 18 months later, the church contacted him to tell him that they had decided to end their financial support while he was on the mission field. They told this young missionary, you haven't sinned. We just want to use our money for something else now, for some other project. And, and this young missionary, he, he tried to explain to the elders, look, if you cut my support, humanly speaking, my family and I will have to return to the States. But the elders didn't listen. They didn't particularly care, and they cut his support. But that wasn't all. They not only cut his support, they then demanded that he not contact anybody else from the church to find support. This was his home church in which he'd grown up in. And that wasn't all. The church leaders then tried to ruin his reputation with the church members, including his own parents, who were members of the church. Now, what this young missionary didn't know is that there was a power struggle going on among the church leaders 
And somehow from a thousand miles away, the missionaries seemed to have been viewed as a threat by the leadership team. Now, I cannot deny that when I read 3 John, that story comes to mind. I was 26 years old with a wife and a newborn baby. And we felt really, really vulnerable. But there were others who stepped up to protect us and to make clear that we were not alone. Churches stepped up to care for us. And most of all, the Lord stepped up, actually sending a man I had never met and never contacted who offered to provide the entire missing amount of our support, which was over, over a quarter of our support at that time. Faithful missionary support should protect our missionaries. This is one of the primary reasons John is writing this letter. He is protecting the missionaries being sent with a letter of recommendation for Gaius. He's doing what Diotrephes failed to do. John used his apostolic authority to protect the faithful missionaries his churches had sent out. He was for them. And I would ask that you men do the same. If a missions agency is not requiring adequate financial support, advocate for the missionary. Advocate for your missionaries. If the missionary family or children are struggling on the mission field, go send some leaders to encourage and lovingly and patiently counsel them. It's hard losing your support structure. If there is a leadership problem on the mission field, Stand in the gap for them as gospel partners. When there is miscommunication, be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, like God commands us in James 1.9. Be faithful to fulfill your financial commitments. And remember what we saw earlier? Believe the best. Believe the best about your missionaries. That's how we partner with one another. That's how we protect one another in our vulnerabilities. So, faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership, should be extravagant in its provision, should protect our missionaries, and fourth, it should be given to faithful gospel workers. It should be given to faithful gospel workers. In 3 John, verse 12, it says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius is the kind of faithful missionary that we should be quick to support. This is John's letter of recommendation for him and his team. But not everyone who asks to be sent or supported, should be sent or supported. So how should we decide? How do we know who? Third John does not give us a step-by-step -step policy manual for choosing which missionaries to support, but it does give us some pretty valuable principles that should definitely be found in any church's philosophy of missions. So faithful missionary support should be given to faithful gospel workers. And faithful, faithful gospel workers, first of all, are those who are sent out for the sake of the name. 
They are those who are sent out for the sake of the Lord. That is to say, they are gospel workers, not just random do-gooders or nonprofits. The priority of the church should be to support those who are committed to the fulfillment of the great commission of Matthew 28 by planting and strengthening disciple-making churches. There are a lot of good things that we can do as a church. There are a lot of good things we can and perhaps should support as a church, but we should prioritize supporting those who've gone out for the sake of the gospel. Secondly, faithful gospel workers are those who are thoughtful in their missiology, thoughtful in their theology and philosophy of missions. 3 John 7 says, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. These missionaries had made a choice to not accept financial support from the unbelievers, the Gentiles, that they were trying to reach. That was the same philosophy of ministry, the same policy that the Apostle Paul utilized himself. Now, what's interesting is it's not actually a biblical command. It's not the only way to do things. But it is a philosophically consistent way of doing things. The point is that these missionaries had thought through their missiology. They had thought through their approach to missions. And they'd made the decision to preach the gospel free of charge so that the message would not be confused with self-interest. That shows a thoughtful missiology And I believe we should prioritize supporting people like that who have thought through the mission of the gospel and their approach. Third, faithful gospel workers are those who embrace appropriate accountability. Who embrace appropriate accountability. It says in 3 John 3 that these missionary brothers, quote, came and testified to your truth. And then in verse Six, it says, they testified to your love before the church. Now, these texts indicate that these missionaries had been sent out by a church or by a network of churches, and that they had then returned and given an account to those same churches. That indicates that faithful missionaries are not lone rangers. They don't buck against authority or create their own little kingdoms so they don't have to be accountable to anybody. Now, having said that, missionary accountability can work itself out in a number of ways. Now, I'll be honest, oftentimes a mission agency plays a particularly helpful role in providing that sort of accountability on the field. But the point is, however you do it, is that missionaries embrace, faithful missionaries embrace appropriate accountability as part of the body of Christ. And finally, faithful gospel workers are those who are recommended by trustworthy people. They are recommended by trustworthy people. If I'm right that Demetrius is the leader of this missionary team, then this letter is essentially a letter of recommendation for Demetrius. Again, John writes in 3 John 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, ideally, we are raising up missionaries from within our own local church bodies. And they come with a recommendation of the church body and of the elders. 
That's easy in that sense. That's easy to figure out. But the reality is that one church can rarely fully support a missionary. It's just too expensive and too difficult. So we need multiple churches involved. And what that means is that one church can end up receiving dozens or even hundreds of requests for missionary support every year. So how do you choose? How do you choose which missionaries to support? I would propose that you give priority to those who have been recommended by trustworthy people. That's how you choose. Those who carry the strong recommendation of their sending church or of other trusted pastors and leaders and of other like-minded ministries. Support people who come recommended by trustworthy people. And if you say we'll only support people who we send, I'll say this, unless you're willing to 100% support them, then you should consider supporting other missionaries as well. We need one another. The task is too big. But support the right people. To summarize, and then we'll have a time of Q&A. Faithful gospel support should be given to faithful gospel workers by faithful gospel churches. Faithful gospel support should be given to faithful gospel workers by faithful gospel churches. As international missionaries and as local churches, we have together been given the unique privilege and responsibility and joy of making Jesus known both here in the Midwest and to the ends of the earth. Therefore, it says in John 3, 8, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Let me pray. Father, may you help us here be fellow workers for the truth. May we be on the same team, Team Jesus, as we work together locally, regionally, internationally to spread the good news of Jesus, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because we once were not a people, now we are a people. We were once without mercy, and now we have received mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have uh, 10 minutes or so. Again, if you would be interested in thinking more through this at, at a book level, I'd encourage you to grab one of these books. If you're involved in missions uh, or thinking about missions, the caveat is you have to read it within the next month and send me a note saying something you learned. It could be two words, like it stunk. That's okay. It's something, though. I, I did find this book uh, put out by Nine Marks is one of the best summaries I've ever read with how local churches can engage in missions. It's just a summary, but it's very, very helpful. So I'll open it up here. What questions, comments, accusations do you have? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I do feel I'm a little bit behind the curve with some recent writing. Uh, but a few key books that were helpful that are very accessible uh, actually is Missions, this book. Uh, another one is actually also by Nine Marks called Evangelism. It's a little red book. Uh, one of my favorite books that is now increasingly out of print is called um, The Gospel-Centered Church by Tim Chester. Uh, a book that was transformative for me in college, and this is 20 plus years ago, but actually put me on the path I'm on now, 
is called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, by Roland Allen. It's an old book written 100 years ago, but he was a, uh, a pioneer of his age. Back in the day where you had missionaries living on a compound, really separated from the people they're ministering to, uh, very focused on gathering people to a location. He went through the book of Acts, he's an Anglican missionary, and unpacked Paul's missionary strategy as a church planter. Uh, and his approach to missions. And that was really transformative for me to understand the centrality of the church and church planting in God's plan for the ages. Uh, there's also a, a, a good book that uh, some colleagues of mine have written, uh, Craig Ott and Gene Wilson. Uh, I think it's called Biblical Church Planting, uh, something along those lines. Uh, last name Ott, O-T-T, and Wilson. Craig Ott is a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, so you might not like who, who recommends the book. I think in the intro, just ignore that and move on and read the rest of the book. The first half is theology, and the second half is more practice. Uh, I'd also say, uh, honestly, Tim Keller's material has been very, very helpful. Uh, his book, Center Church, there are some smaller versions of that that really help wrestle with how do we engage in the postmodern world, especially in urban environments. The reality is there's a lot of good material out there. I, I want to be careful, though, there are multiple ways to approach gospel mission. There's only one gospel message. There are multiple legitimate strategies. I may have certain convictions and certain preferences, but we have to be very careful to say my way is the only way. I mean, even the Pauline strategy in the book of Acts, that was Paul's strategy. It's worth listening to and learning from, absolutely. That doesn't mean that was the only strategy any apostle ever used or any church should ever use. So we want to develop deep biblical convictions about the gospel message and gospel mission, about what the church is and what it should be, who we are as God's people and why we exist in the world. But I would show some grace as you wrestle through specific methodologies. Does that make sense? I think as biblically-minded people at times, we sanctify our strategies and methodologies in a way that we make them equal with the Word of God. And that actually is sacrilegious. That's borderline heretical. Um, my opinion and my preferences are not the same thing as the Word of God, neither as a pastor nor as a missionary. So wrestle deeply with these issues, but also show grace as we're wrestling through what it might look like today. Yeah, Eric? Yeah, so there are kind of two philosophies of how to approach who you support in that area. One is we support the missionary, is the primary focus. And the other is we, we, we support people working in a certain region. All right? That's kind of two different ways churches approach it. I will say my strong preference uh, is that um, you support your missionaries. Uh, I say that because uh, missionary work sometimes means you move somewhere and you live there for 40 years and you die there. But oftentimes, God is going to use a missionary, part of the sort of apostolic sort of activity, to have that missionary move around at different points in his or her life. That could be every year or every six years or every ten years. I thought when I first moved to northern Spain, I was going to you know, get on the plane, land, and die there. 
And God had other plans for me. Uh, and I think that was part of God's plan. So I, I would prefer you believe enough in the people you send to say that we're going to walk with you through these ebbs and flows of life and ministry and history. That doesn't mean that if a missionary says, yeah, I'm ministering in northern Spain, and now I'm going to uh, be an associate pastor at a large church in Los Angeles, I'd like you to keep supporting me. I mean, let's talk, right? Uh, so that, that partnership means you're involved with one another. So actually, when I took this new role as an area leader over Latin America Caribbean, uh, my, my boss, who's the international leader for all of Latin America Caribbean, uh, I had him talk with one of our largest supporting churches and with my sending church, with the leadership, before even offering me the, the position. So I needed their engagement, and then I sought their counsel as well. And together we made that decision for me to take this new role. The challenge, I understand why a church might say, we want to only reach uh, the Muslim world, and as a church, that's our priority. I, I understand that. There's some value to that. But the question is, who's God's who is God raising up from within your own body? What are their unique gifts and passions in ministry? Uh, what if God's raising up somebody who has a unique passion to reach, I'll stick with the Spain theme, to reach northern Spain, where less than 1% of the people are evangelical? Are you going to say no because they aren't in your target region, even though God raised them up in your church? I just think you need to wrestle with that. Um, and I think you want to allow your missionaries the flexibility over time with good counsel and wisdom to make changes in their ministry or location if that is going to be most impactful for the gospel. Now, I'll just say, I want to be careful how I say this because I think this is being recorded, but we had a, a church in our support, a significant church after this change, and a leader told me, your new ministry is probably, will be more impactful and more strategic than your previous ministry, but it doesn't, doesn't fit within our philosophy of missions. I don't know what to say to that. What I want to do in my ministry is to be the most impactful and strategic that I can be, not just check off a box. Uh, and if that doesn't work out for both of us, that's fine. But I would hope that your churches would want to, your people engaging in a way and in an area where they can be most impactful and fruitful for the gospel. Yeah, uh, the first question is, you're saying that church planting, in his mind, is a primary thing you do in missions. It's, it's planting different, or, different locations. I'd say yes and. Uh, so certain regions don't have churches, and so you need to plant churches or don't have enough churches. And so either the missionary is planting the church or ideally partnering with national believers to help them plant the church. That is a, a better model where possible. However, churches find themselves at different points in maturity. So in Western Europe right now, you have less than 1% of the population is now evangelical. That has become a more pioneering environment, okay? Same as in some Muslim countries. In Latin America where I am, it's a legitimate question of why do we need missionaries if the, mission, if the Christian population is growing? Well, the reason why we still need a certain kind of missionary is because the church isn't mature right now to the degree that it can multiply by itself. For a variety of reasons, it's got distracted by false gospels or inadequate leadership development or weak theology. There's a, a variety of elements. Uh, social unrest is ravaging Latin America right now. So we want to come alongside in an Apollos way. So Paul would be a pioneer way. Apollos would be a watering way. Certain areas need more of a watering ministry, and that's going to be more focused on training and development, ultimately flowing into and out of local churches. So I think it's a both and. Church planting, yes, but also church planting development, and at times uh, ev evangelism, discipleship, interwoven through all of those. The second question was inappropriate accountability. 
very simply, it would be abusive controlling accountability. You cannot micromanage your missionaries from a thousand miles away, nor should you. If you don't trust your missionaries to do good gospel work, and you don't trust their, local, their leadership on the ground, then you probably shouldn't send them. Uh, if you have an abusive leader on the mission field, uh, and that leader is both their boss and their pastor, for example, and they're a domineering leader, you have a real crisis. Those missionaries are trapped. And I've seen that happen. They're trapped. They don't know where to go. And, and, and so they need their churches actually to advocate for them, and they need godly counsel. But that abusive, controlling, manipulative leadership would be inappropriate accountability. And if you want to, to, to think through uh, bad leadership, I encourage you to read Ezekiel 34. Uh, I preached on that a few weeks ago. It might blow your mind. We have a lot of bad leaders floating around and a lot of really amazing leaders as well. How about someone over here? I saw some hands. Yeah. Yeah, that is a great question. How has raising my kids overseas affected them positively and negatively? I've raised four kids uh, overseas in three countries. Uh, Two of my kids were born in Spain, my youngest in Mexico, and one on a trip to Los Angeles, so we're kind of diverse. It it, it Positively, uh, in addition to knowing two languages, it allows our kids to be able to function in all sorts of different environments. They, They really can. They can step into any environment and figure it out. They've learned to live in multiple cultures. They are uniquely adept at understanding other people's worldviews at times. Uh, they are uniquely sensitive to marginalized people because they're always on the margins. Missionary kids are called third culture kids. They don't belong to, like, to this culture or that culture. They form sort of a new culture. And there's some real strengths uh, to those third culture missionary kids. They also get to see their parents living their lives fully for the gospel if their parents are being faithful. Uh, they see their parents sacrificing things for the gospel, saying Jesus is worth more than comfort. Jesus is worth more than whatever the world has to offer. They're seeing it day by day if their parents are being faithful. And that's a powerful gospel witness. And then our, our kids have been discipled by all sorts of, in, uh, part of the Mexico City, godly Mexican men and women who invest in my children. And that is a beautiful, powerful experience to be invested in by people from a different cultural perspective who love Jesus and can provide a broader family network for my kids. Now, the, the downside, uh, missionary kids tend to have real serious crises of identity. They don't know who they are. Uh, and as they enter into adulthood, I don't want to say too much uh, for my own kids, but uh, there are times it's been very, very painful, and I didn't know if my kids would make it. Uh, my kids come back to the States, and they're all pale, white, red-headed kids. I have four red-headed kids. I don't know why. That's how they come out. And... Um, they look like an average white middle-class kid, but they've only lived in the States for a few years of their entire life. Uh, and so people don't know, don't know what to do with them. My kids legally are Hispanic, uh, by all legal definitions, and, but they don't look Hispanic. They think Hispanic. So it can be really hard for them to figure out who they are and uh, for people to treat them well. And, and then also, like with pastor kids, there's a lot of pressure on missionary kids to, to be pretty perfect. And, um, and it's challenging to be a missionary kid. And you're always on display when you come back to the States. And so I'd encourage you guys as churches to be really gracious towards missionary families. They're figuring out what it means to raise a 16-year-old just like you are, right? 
But they're doing it without a lot of the, the peer correction that happens in a church youth group. My kids never grew up with Christian peers, not one. Their entire life. We were always the starters. The believing, the believing families had younger kids than us. So they never had peers to help correct them on behavior, for example, what's appropriate in a certain context or not. So be really gracious to them. and Be gracious to the, their parents as they wrestle through, walking their kids through massive transition. There are studies done that say when you go through a crisis, your brain functions at like half capacity. That's how most missionaries are functioning overseas and in the States, and their kids also. They're usually not at their best. So one of the best things that, that Flint Hills has done for us, living here the last year and a half, is Dave's been very clear that he's for my children and that I don't need to be embarrassed or afraid they're going to cut us off when, when my kid says something weird. Um, one of the churches that actually we've most struggled with uh, historically, but uh, to praise them, we came back to, from Mexico for a visit uh, six years ago. And it was the middle of um, a lot of the, the kneeling uh, during the flag and things like that. And, and my son was, was very sensitive to, it, it, to injustice. <laughs> so they had a youth activity day, and they were all playing wiffle ball. And they brought popcorn and, and peanuts. They did the national anthem, which they don't normally do at the church, is try to make like a baseball game. And my son kneeled. <laughs> And they just took it in stride and they loved my son. I was really thankful for that. That was a gracious thing to do. They didn't make it an issue. They loved my son. So it's a beautiful opportunity for kids. It's also really, really hard. 